1: Fido's Article 5 in Cyberspace, Conti's ransomware attacks against Costa Rica spreads in scope and effect, Bluetooth vulnerabilities are demonstrated in a proof of concept, CISA and its international partners urge following best practices to prevent threat actors from gaining initial access, Joe Kerrigan looks at updates to the Fido Alliance, Rick Howard and Ben Rothke discuss author Andrew Stewart's book, A Vulnerable System, The History of Information Security in the Computer Age. And the doctor was in, but wow, was he also way out of line? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, May seventeenth, twenty twenty-two. An op-ed by Akamai and CSO warns that the cyber war against pro-Ukrainian countries is real and then goes on to describe the nature of those threats. They're the sorts of activity that have been much in evidence recently. Russian-aligned cyber criminal gangs engaged in ransomware and Russian-aligned hacktivist groups engaged in distributed denial-of-service attacks. The author urges organizations to apply sound best practices to protect themselves. Against ransomware, they recommend network segmentation. Against DDoS, they recommend conducting service validations, confirming authorized mitigation service contacts, reviewing and updating runbooks, performing operational readiness drills, and updating your emergency methods of communication. With a hybrid war in progress and NATO directly adjacent to that war's active theater of operations, The European Leadership Network has published an essay that argues for greater clarity in how the Atlantic Alliance will execute its commitment to collective defense when the attack comes in cyberspace. The authors recommend clarity for the opposition in the form of defined red lines, but most of their discussions look inward toward unity of command, toward maintaining an accurate picture of the friendly situation in cyberspace, toward regular collection and reporting of cyber intelligence, and, of course, toward a clear understanding of the legal constraints on cyber activity. Reuters reports that the number of Costa Rican organizations affected by Conti's ransomware attack has now grown to 27. Recently elected President Rodrigo Chavez has said that nine institutions, most of them governmental, were heavily affected – and that the attacks were having an enormous impact on foreign trade and tax collection. The governments of Israel, the United States, and Spain are all providing Costa Rica with assistance in recovery and remediation, but a lot of work remains to be done. Conti has been crowing large over its malign intentions for the Central American country, and it's worth remembering that the ransomware gang operates from Russia and with the effective protection of the Russian government. They say, just pay before it's too late. Your country was destroyed by two people. We are determined to overthrow the government by means of a cyber attack. We have already shown you all the strength and power. You have introduced an emergency. And, by the way, the ransom demand has gone up to $20 million, and I suppose adding insult to injury, they've referred to U.S. President Biden as a terrorist. Costa Rica has refused to pay the ransom. NCC Group researchers have demonstrated that Bluetooth low-energy systems are vulnerable to link-layer relay attack. The news has been generally reported with headlines that point out that crooks could now open and start your Tesla without so much as a buy-your-leave, but the problem is more widespread than that. According to NCC Group, BLE is the standard protocol used for sharing data between devices— That has been adopted by companies for proximity authentication to unlock millions of vehicles, residential smart locks, commercial building access control systems, smartphones, smartwatches, laptops, and more. It's not the kind of problem that can be resolved with a patch. Rather, NCC Group argues, it's the kind of issue that arises when technologies are extended beyond their intended purpose, and BLE, they say, was never designed for use in critical systems." The researchers offer three recommendations, two for manufacturers, one for users. They say manufacturers can reduce risk by disabling proximity key functionality when the user's phone or key fob has been stationary for a while. They say system makers should give customers the option of providing a second factor for authentication or use presence attestation, such as tapping an unlock button on an app on the phone. And they say users of affected products should disable passive unlock functionality that does not require explicit user approval or disable Bluetooth on mobile devices when it's not needed. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, that's CISA, and its partners in Canada, the Netherlands, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom this morning issued Alert AA22-137A, Weak security controls and practices routinely exploited for initial access. The alert describes common weak security controls, poor configurations, and poor security practices that are used for initial access. And it recommends particular attention to seven best practices, including control access, hardening credentials, establishing centralized log management, using antivirus solutions, employing detection tools, operating services exposed on Internet-accessible hosts with secure configurations, and, of course, keeping software updated. And finally, there's the curious case of the crooked cardiologist, a multitasking C2C ransomware purveyor who prided himself on good customer reviews but, in other respects, seems to be something of a case of arrested development. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York yesterday announced that it had charged Dr. Moises Luis Zagala Gonzalez with attempted computer intrusions and conspiracy to commit computer intrusions. Brian Peace, the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of New York, explained, As alleged, the multitasking doctor treated patients, created and named his cyber tool after death, profited from a global ransomware ecosystem in which he sold the tools for conducting ransomware attacks, trained the attackers about how to extort victims, and then boasted about successful attacks, including by malicious actors associated with the government of Iran. So Dr. Zagala, when he wasn't using his stethoscope, was busy coding ransomware and selling it in the C2C markets. His customers included, as the U.S. attorney said, Iran, specifically the Muddy Water Threat Group, but many others as well. He offered both licenses and an affiliate program. His reviews in the dark web equivalent of Yelp were pretty good, too. One satisfied crook said, I bought the ransomware from Nosophorus, and it's very powerful, and said he used the product to infect about 3,000 machines. A happy Rusophone customer wrote, we have been working with this product for over a month now. We have a good profit. Best support I've met. Dr. Zagala offered advice in chat forums where he used the hacker name Nosophorus, disease-bearing in Greek, and, fun fact, the root of the vampire name Nosferatu. He's also evidently a fan of the Marvel Universe because he called some of his wares Thanos. He's still at large and living it up in the Shudad Bolivar, Venezuela, So he's unlikely to face justice anytime soon, but Thanos had better hope the FBI's New York field office doesn't find the rest of the Infinity Stones, in which case they'd snap him into Club Fed. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple
2: You're listening to the theme song of the HBO long-running hit Game of Thrones, the unofficial anthem for the Cybersecurity Canon Project, the project designed to find the must-read books for all cybersecurity professionals because one of the greatest characters of all time, Tyrion Lannister, had this to say about reading books.
0: Why'd you read so much?
2: Well, my brother has his sword and I have my mind, and a mind needs books
1: like a sword needs a whetstone. That's why I read so much, Jon Snow.
2: Which means it's Cybersecurity Canon Week here at The Cyberwire, where we are interviewing all the Canon Hall of Fame inductee authors for the 2022 season. I'm Rick Howard, the Chief Security Officer, Chief Analyst, and Senior Fellow here at The Cyberwire, and today's book is called A Vulnerable System The History of Information Security in the Computer Age by Andrew Stewart. Enjoy. I'm joined by Ben Rothke, a very old friend of mine, one of the original members of the Cybersecurity Canon Committee, a senior information security manager at Tapad, and how do I say this, Ben? A voracious reader. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. You know, thanks for uh, thanks for
0: spearheading things and starting it.
2: So today we're talking about the latest entry into the Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame: a book called "A Vulnerable System." The History of Information Security in the Computer Age by Andrew J. Stewart and published by Cornell University Press in September 2021. And, Ben, you know Andrew, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's one of those you know, sort of Internet friends we've never met in person.
0: But, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah actually, uh, go back, you know, a number of years. Actually, I was an advanced reader of the book. So, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it from before uh, it was publicly
2: available. So, uh, you wrote the original review for this for the Canon project. So, why is this a cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame inductee?
0: For a lot of reasons, those getting into, you know, wh- whether technology or anything uh, generally or information security specifically, it, it, it's often you can just jump in and, you know, start doing things. But, you know, Santiana said those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. So, this is <laughs> in, in, in large part, in large part, a history. Uh, of information security, as Isaac Newton said, if I've seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. I think this really shows the context of information security, its history, where it's coming from, you know, how we got here today, how you know some of the issues are you know inherent in the uh, design of you know the first computers and some of the trajectories which were uh, mistaken, uh, you know, uh, you know, plague us today. So I think it really is a um uh, a fundamental text, because really, to you can't just do information security. You have to, you know, understand its history. I mean, sure, you know, someone can be a uh, a firewall administrator. You could, uh, you know, you could harden Linux boxes. So that's in a very limited sense. But if you're working at the the enterprise level, in the big picture, and you know, understand what this thing called security is, you know, having this this understanding of you know how we got here today really can uh, be a good Lynchpin too
2: you know how are you going to go you know move forwards i thought the section of the book about the early history was fascinating he covers the period of mainframe computers from the beginning of the digital age i mean this is way back to the 1940s in the incipient research of how to secure them and he makes the case that early researchers tried to design a secure computing system but never really attained that goal and so i i love that little you know storytelling there did you have a favorite part of the history that you liked security
0: is all about trade-offs and you know we could never build a a perfect system and when you've got complex programs with hundreds of thousands you know or millions of lines of code bugs are you know inherent and it's impossible to certify and prove security and i think that's um from an academic perspective it's it's almost uh, impossible to build a any system that's you know provably secure but once again, you need to know that going in the real world is that you know everything really is a is a trade off.
2: That's really a good point. Yeah.
0: Once again, is if you're in a you know small auto body shop, then you know security means one thing. If you're at a brokerage and you're uh, you know making billion dollar trades, obviously you need a you know a lot more security there. I mean, I, you know, he talks about the economics of security, the psychology
2: of security that drives everything. That's Ben Rothke, the senior manager at TapEd, and the book is called A Vulnerable System, The History of Information Security in the Computer Age by Andrew Stewart. And it's the latest addition into the Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame. For more information on the project, go to your favorite search engine and look up cybersecurity canon, that's canon with one N, as in canon of literature, not two Ns where you blow stuff up, and Ohio State University, the project's official sponsor.
1: If you like what you hear and want to hear the full interview, subscribe to CyberWire Pro today to get access to the latest episodes of CSO Perspectives, plus much more. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers... That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, we were talking over on hacking humans about uh, a press release actually that came from the FIDO Alliance. FIDO stands for Fast Identity Online. There you go. <laughs> I'll never forget it again, Dave. <laughs> so the FIDO Alliance—they uh, are in the business of of trying to uh, make authentication better. Uh, more convenient, more uh, all while keeping it secure. Yes. Uh, and they have uh, some interesting news here. Uh, a bunch of big names have gotten on board to try to push some of these efforts forward. What's going on here, Joe? So apparently, uh, Google, Apple, and Microsoft have committed to expanded
3: support for the Fido Alliance standard. Okay. Fido has worked with tech companies over the years to build a standard yeah. that is essentially public-private key... Authentication. Okay. Right. Uh, and this standard can be implemented in a number of different ways. The most common way you see it implemented is with a some kind of hardware token.
1: Right. 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 Where so my YubiKey.
3: Exactly. A YubiKey. A Google Titan. There are yep. tons, tons of devices out there that that use this
1: standard. So they conform to one of to the FIDO Alliance. To the FIDO right? Alliance
3: standard. Got exactly. It. Yep. The way it works is it has a secret on it. Mm-hmm. Right. That secret is combined with the domain of the website that is requesting the uh, the authentication. Right, right, and that's the the combination of the secret and the domain are used in the generation of a private key. Okay, and it's generated on the fly, so it actually doesn't even need to be stored. Okay, the only thing that needs to be stored is the uh, is the is the secret. Yeah. So when you register. Uh, you you actually do have to register your device, your your hardware device, with the uh, with the service you're going to use to authenticate it. And right now, it's used as multi factor authentication, right? Right. So uh, you know you you would enter user your username and your password, and then you would push a button on your hardware device that says, "I'm ready to uh, ready to do the work, ready yeah. to do the cryptographic work here." But when you when you register the key, you actually give them a public key. Mm -hmm. that is uh, unique to that website. So let's say you're going to register with Google, which you can do, by the way. And if you have a YubiKey, you should absolutely use a YubiKey to to register register YubiKey with Google for authentication. And I will say this, get two of them, (laughs) right get two of them and register both of them you can register both of them yeah uh you know
1: from experience
3: right i I don't know this from experience but (laughs) i can see the problem coming down the road
1: i i do (laughs) right
3: (laughs) i do i do (laughs) because you're going to be carrying around one of these yubi keys with you yeah uh and i keep mine on my backpack but they have little holes in them to keep with their keys yeah they're going to get treated roughly they're going to be with something you lose you know like my backpack is actually a target for theft right so uh, nobody's
1: just, strong enough to to run off with your backpack joe yeah, my backpack is very heavy <laughs> they will be going sufficiently
3: slower right. hopefully <laughs> slow enough that I'll be able to catch them that's right but uh that's not likely <laughs> i'm i'm way too old and i really hate running after people he's <laughs> just like nah you can keep it right. uh, but so if that happens and then you're not going to be able to authenticate to your uh to your accounts anymore. So you need a second one yeah. that you just keep at home or keep safe.
1: Yeah. Right? Well, let's talk about what they're pushing forward here that these these organizations have agreed to roll out over the course of the rest of this year.
3: Well, one of the things that they're looking forward to or they're actually looking at is because this is a public-private key exchange, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 it's essentially private, it's essentially public key, private key authentication. It's better than the password. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. they're they're actually moving towards passwordless authentication. Yeah. And that's what these three companies have agreed to. This is uh Google, Microsoft, and and uh Apple mm-hmm. are are agreed to it. So the there are two big tech names who are notably missing here, uh, those being Facebook and uh Amazon. although I will say I do have my YubiKeys registered with my Facebook account. Mm-hmm. Uh so Facebook's already on board, I think, at least mm-hmm. with uh with the Fido Alliance
1: standard. So two main things they're, they're announcing here that are going right. to be rolled out this year. And what are those?
3: One is they're going to allow users to automatically access their FIDO sign-in credentials, which they call a passkey, yep. on many of their same devices, uh, even new ones, without having to re-enroll every account.
1: Ah, okay. So More convenient. Yes. Mm-hmm.
3: And another one is they're going to enable users to use FIDO authentication on their mobile device to sign in uh, to an app or website on a nearby device, regardless of the OS platform or browser that they're running, oh,
1: so I see.
3: They're going to implement a software version of of uh, the FIDO stuff.
1: So you can use your mobile device with your, let's say, desktop computer for right. authentication. Yes. Again, making that more seamless, reducing friction, which I I submit will uh, accelerate adoption. The easier I agree. 100 stuff. Yep. Yeah.
3: If you, I think if you can just get away from passwords and come up with a good secure way to do private key management. yeah, And all these authentication sites are storing, instead of storing password hashes or anything like that, they're storing just public keys. If those are ever breached, those are absolutely useless to an attacker. Yeah, They have no value at all. Right. Um, first off, they're gonna be different for every single uh, site you go to, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So it's gonna be t- difficult to associate you across multiple sites. Um, unless you use the same username or other information. I mean, then then it's going to be the same old standard stuff. Uh, But it's not like a password hash. A password hash is is a, you can think of it as an encrypted way of storing your password. It's really not, I mean, I guess it is encrypted, but you can't ever decrypt it. Mm -hmm. But one thing you can do is take a bunch of guesses and see if you get a match,
1: Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm.
3: Uh, That is useless against public-private key cryptography. You can't do that. I see the guess you just have to start guessing the the private key space, and that space is huge right right
1: right you'll right. never finish right all right well i I think good news here, especially that we've got these uh, these three heavy hitters on board yes, uh, hopefully we're heading or accelerating our uh, journey in that direction of a passwordless future I I think it's coming yeah. you remember
3: six years ago. When we started doing this, yeah. when I started appearing on this show. Yeah. We were talking about passwordless logins, getting rid of passwords, and I was like, I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. Well, here, this is what it looks
1: like. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. All right, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining my us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Rachel Gelfand, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Balecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.